This morning we are continuing in our series, Encounters with Jesus. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about the story of Zacchaeus. How Jesus moves towards this tax collector who's rejected by society with radical acceptance. This guy who was scorned by everyone was accepted by Jesus Christ. And as a result, we see this guy Zacchaeus offer amazing repentance in response. He repents of his sins and he actually finds salvation in Christ. Now, so far we've talked about a certain kind of brand of Jesus maybe. The Jesus that is really gracious, really accepting. He moves towards people really quickly. Kind of a, a nice guy, Jesus. Just goes around healing people. And today we're going to look at maybe a slightly harder side to Jesus, where he's maybe not as quick to accept, though this is an equally loving Jesus. Today we're going to be looking at the story of the rich young ruler. We're going to see that Jesus actually, instead of just radically accepting this man, actually challenges him to the core. Because this man was, was not someone humbly coming to Jesus, repenting of his sins. This was a man who is ultimately self-righteous and kind of self-obsessed, self-absorbed. And the most loving thing that Jesus can do for this man is to call him out and actually cause him to, to mourn over his sin. And so we're going to see that Jesus is going to come to this man to do three things. He's going to challenge his idea of goodness. And I ask him, are, are you really as good as you think you are? He's going to identify this guy's ultimate idol, the things that are keeping him from, from love for God. And then he's going to go forward and actually draw this man towards himself. He gives himself fully to the rich young ruler. So the hope is that we would understand that Jesus really does use the law to challenge people who think that they're good. And he presses us on the fact that we are sinners and that we need to find miraculous salvation. That that is part of Jesus' call. And then we're going to see that we in turn need to be people who are ready to be challenged by Jesus, but are also ready to challenge others. To not just radically accept, but also to give people the one true Savior in a way that, that can be difficult, maybe doesn't feel gracious, doesn't feel loving, but is ultimately so. All right, so let's jump into Luke 18, 18 through 30. Some excitement over this. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Luke 18, verses, one through, uh, verses 18 through 30, excuse me. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. All right. So first of all, Jesus comes and challenges this man's conception of goodness. All right, so we have this rich young guy, and he comes to Jesus, and we wonder, all right, on what sense did this guy come to Jesus? I think if we're reading the story well, we have to say that he comes actually pretty uh, excited. I don't know, he's kind of desperate to receive eternal life. He's not apathetic. It's not kind of just to like pass in the time with Jesus. He comes urgently to Jesus. Matthew even says that he comes pleading on his knees, asking Jesus, what do I need to do to, etern to earn eternal life? What can I do? And we might say that this guy is, is prideful, but no, he is asking Jesus what he needs to do. He's coming to Jesus with a stance of humility that he needs to learn. And so in a lot of regards, we might say, well, this guy is, is ripe to receive the kingdom. In fact, he's an unlikely candidate. He's wealthy, so he probably would have been pretty convinced that according to the cultural standard that he was pretty responsible, he was wise, he was maybe even blessed by God because of his wealth, that he's doing pretty well spiritually. You mean, we're surprised that this, someone so young would come to Jesus tend to think that the young aren't console, concerned with the state of their soul, but here's this young man coming to Jesus. We even see a ruler, a man who has authority, kind of presenting himself under the authority of Jesus. All of those things would say that, okay, this, this man is, is good to receive the gospel. And just as a reminder, Jesus, Jesus has nothing against rich people per se. All right, we talked about him as Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was super rich, and he's super gracious to him. Jesus has nothing against young people. He, he welcomes the children to him, just right, right above this passage, let the little children come to me. He's not against rulers. We already talked about the Roman centurion. Jesus doesn't have authority issues. So none of those fit, but even though this man seems like he is so eager to come to know salvation, Jesus gives him a surprising response. Verse 18, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That sounds like a good question, a relevant question. If someone asks you that at your workplace, if one of your children who don't know Christ asked you that, you'd probably be really excited, right? Excited to give them the gospel. And we probably have an understanding of like, okay, we expect we think we know what Jesus is going to say to this guy. But instead of answering the question directly, first Jesus actually dissects the question and identifies kind of the misunderstandings that are latent in it. So verse 19. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. All right. So this seems 
kind of ticky-tack at Jesus, right? He's like picking at the guy's words for calling him a good teacher. Now we wonder, why does Jesus care about that? Especially because Jesus is a good teacher. If, and he says, no, no one is good except God alone. Jesus is God. So if you're going to call anyone good, it's, he's allowed to get away with it this time. Why does Jesus care that he's been called a good teacher? And why does he press the issue? Well, this guy, he doesn't know that Jesus is God. Doesn't seem that he knows that. And so what he's doing is he's coming to just a generic teacher and calling him good. And Jesus has a problem with that. Why does Jesus have a problem with that? Essentially because this rich young ruler has this category for goodness that he's willing to put people in under. Right? Okay, there's, there's some people under the class of good. Now, why is that a problem? We tend to, eh, people tend to have this as conception of goodness. A common conception in our society. What are, who are good people? Good people are generally nice, polite, try to do the good thing when they get the chance. Maybe they try their best to, to keep the commandments. They don't lie, you know, they try not to. They're white lies if they do. They don't steal. They've never murdered anyone. They've never done like the big, big sins. Those are good people. And that's the standard that everyone's using. Well, Jesus is reminding this man that that is not his standard. That is not Jesus' standard of goodness. For Jesus, goodness means perfection. It means righteousness. It means holiness. And so if you're going to call anyone good, they better fit his understanding of goodness. A type of goodness that reaches deep down into your heart, into your soul, into what you worship, what you desire, what you love. And with that kind of goodness, Jesus has different interpretations of the law. So what does it mean to avoid adultery? Someone who is truly good doesn't just say, oh yeah, no, I've never committed adultery. No, the point of that law is that we might be faithful and committed to our spouses with all of our hearts and minds and souls. That we seek what is best for them at all times. That we give our lives to our spouses. That is what goodness is according to that commandment. In the same way, goodness is not just not murdering people, right? Like you get home at the end of the day and like, check that one off. No, no people murdered today. No, that's not, that's not the excitement of the command. So yes, you're not supposed to kill people. But the point is that you would preserve life, that you would protect life, that you would actually, instead of taking people's lives, commit your life to other people. That is what the commandment is getting at. For Jesus, goodness means not just avoiding lies, but giving people the truth that they need when they need it. Not stealing, yes, but instead giving to those who are poor and who are needy out of what you have rightfully earned. That is the point of the law. There's a deeper heart matters that go through the law that Jesus, Jesus is using those commandments as his basis for goodness. And so if we're using that standard, then yes, no one, no one is going to be good. None of us are really good. 
no human being is ever going to be able to claim that title. And Jesus is emphasizing that for this man. That the law is much bigger and that and none of us actually can stack up against it. This is doctrinally what is called the doctrine of total depravity. We're going to use our, our theological language. We've got a wince over there. Yeah. <laughs> total depravity. All right. This is that people are fundamentally not good. They are fundamentally bad. Because goodness is related to God himself. And that we cannot compare ourselves to God and say, oh yeah, no, no, we're good. No, we are fundamentally bad before God. That we have fallen short of every commandment, every chance to obey, every opportunity. That is what Jesus is trying to stress for this man. And so we ask the question, what standard of goodness do we really live by? Do we use the rich young ruler's definition or do we use Jesus's? Think about how you interact with this word. You interact with the word good. Do you wince a little bit when people talk about how good people are? Maybe you say things like, oh yeah, he's, he's, he's a real good guy. Or that family, yeah, they're good people. Maybe even the, the good one, uh, the good guy with a gun versus a bad guy with a gun. We just need to get good guys with guns. We have to be careful with that kind of stuff. There's a theology there. There's a theology latent that is saying that, no, people, people can be fundamentally good. We have to watch that kind of thing. Well, we're actually not reflecting scripture in that way. But Jesus goes in even further. It's not that he just doesn't call everything good. It's that he's actually calling out this guy. Would you be willing to call someone out when they get this wrong? When they express kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of people's goodness? You might be saying, well, I just don't like disagreeing with people. But no, you like disagreeing with people. It just has to be over the right things, right? If we bring up politics, you guys, you guys like to disagree with one another, right? You bring up raising your children. You bring up uh, taxation or, I don't know, maybe sports, right? And you have opinions and you express them. You don't let people get away with disagreeing with you. But what about when people express fundamental understandings of what a human is and what they're doing. Right, we encounter people who say things like, well, oh, you know, God, God just loves us and he's, he knows that we're all just trying our best. That's good enough. What do we do with that? Do we just kind of smile? Or do we say, well, uh, I don't think my good enough is good enough for God. If I tried my best, that wouldn't be good enough. Or what if someone said, oh, you know, you're just so good. You ever had someone compliment you like that? Hopefully, maybe. It's probably because people are uncomfortable that you're doing something nice. But, oh, you're just so good. We ought to adamantly respond, no, I'm not good. I'm just as wicked as everyone else. Don't put me in that category because you're not in that category either. Like, <laughs> that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That is what we believe. And I know it, it might sound kind of weird or silly or, or pedantic or trite that we're emphasizing something that just doesn't seem like a big deal. But the thing is that we reflect our theology in everything that we do. And our words reflect a certain theology. 
And when people express bad theology in the way they're talking, we have to protect them from it. We have to call them out. And the point is that that's actually loving to do that. Oftentimes we kind of just nod and smile, kind of politely letting people totally mislead themselves to convince themselves that they're good before God, that they're fine, that God is going to accept them because they're nice people. And when we do that, we're, we're leaving people in the dark. We're letting them deceive themselves and so that there's no point of Jesus. There's no point for salvation. There's no point for the cross. This might not seem like a big, big deal, but this is a difference between people needing Christ and not needing Christ. It's a difference between people receiving the gospel or not. I think when we hear that word good, our, our total depravity radar needs to go off and we need to pr protect what is true. Protect people to know what is true, what is true of ourselves and what is true of them so that they might know Christ. That is actually an important thing to help those who are lost find the truth and hopefully be freed from it. All right, so <laughs> it's a lot of talk about just this little address, good teacher. So let's keep going. Jesus keeps on pushing this guy with the question that he asked as well, what do I do to inherit eternal life? What do I do to inherit eternal life? What would, how would you respond to that? I think we know what the answer should be. It should be, oh, just put your faith in Jesus Christ and he'll save you. And we sometimes expect Jesus to answer like that. All the time. That's just his, his MO is to say that to everyone and everyone would come to say, be saved. But what does Jesus say? He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and then he said, all of these things I have kept from my youth. What do we do with that? Why does Jesus just push the commandments on this guy who is asking how he might receive eternal life? This is a test for Jesus. Jesus is testing this guy to see, all right, how good do you think you really are? Do you think you can just earn, all, earn your way to salvation? You can just do everything you need to do. And this guy totally fails that test, miserably fails. He reveals that he has a really superficial understanding of the law and a superficial understanding of goodness and that he is convinced that he is a good person, that he's doing really well, that may maybe he has a few commandments that he doesn't know yet, but for the, on the whole, he's doing a really good job. Jesus has revealed that in this, the heart of this man that he really does think that he's good enough that he can find salvation on his own. Jesus has exposed this guy's notion of goodness and he's going to go on to address it. All right, which takes us to our next point. Jesus comes and reveals this man's deepest idolatry. He calls out this man. But before we go there, we want to recognize that in Matthew's account, there's actually something really helpful. It says that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and he loved him. He loved him. He just identified that this guy is totally ignorant about the law, totally convinced and self-righteous. And Jesus 
loved him in the midst of that, and then he totally blows him out of the water with this command. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. All right, Jesus does not call out this guy and say, no, you, you haven't kept all the commandments. That's not true. You're being dumb. He doesn't correct his thinking about the law and increase the law and just say, no, no, that's not really what's meant by do not steal. Instead, he ups the ante on the law and gives him the most brutal commandment he can think of. An all-encompassing, life-changing commandment. Now, why does Jesus do that? All right, there's, there's two ways to correct someone. You can kind of logic with them, reason them through, like, no, that's actually not what that means. Or you can just leave them to try it on their own and watch them fail miserably. Kind of the crash and burn method. That's what Jesus does for this man. Basically says, well, all right, so you want to be a good, righteous, really good person who perfectly obeys the law. Here's the law for you. Sell everything that you own and give it all to the poor. Then you'll have real riches and come follow me. Jesus points out ultimately this guy's heart that he is not ultimately worshiping God. He is worshiping his own wealth. That his allegiance is to money and not to God. And he is not as righteous as he thinks he is. For this man, this is the hardest command that Jesus could come up with. It is intentional for this man to show him his sin, to show him that he is not right before God. It shows him that he is not as good as he thinks he is. That he's been deceiving himself this whole time that in reality, no, he's not a good person. He's a sinner like the rest of us. That in his core heart, what he worships, what he loves, he's a sinner. He is just as bad as all we are. But Jesus shows him other things too. He shows him that in his idolatry, he's actually not getting what he wants. This man wants real wealth. He wants riches. And Jesus actually is showing him how to get it. Right? Look what he says. If you give your things away, you will have true riches in heaven. He offers that to this man. He offers him the true riches that he would ultimately want. Riches for eternity, riches that will last. But this guy in his idolatry, he doesn't want it. He doesn't trust Jesus. He already has what he has. He's not going to, there's nothing better for him. He doesn't trust God to actually give him more than he can, he can sell off. But third, and this is probably the most important one, Jesus is offering himself to this man. He is giving himself to this man. In calling this guy away from wealth, he is calling him to abandon all of his would-be other lovers, his idols, his false loves, the things that he worships, and calling him Come and worship me. Come and love me. Come follow me. He's trying to woo this guy away from his false loves. Trying to tear him away from pointless lovers. 
things that aren't going to really treat him well or love him, give him what he wants. Jesus actually offers him eternal life. He offers him relationship with himself because he is eternal life. You have relationship with Jesus. Yeah, you get your eternal life. That's how you do it. Jesus is bidding that man to come to Jesus to find salvation in him. Now, how does that man react? Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, this is a tragic response to Jesus' invitation. Jesus loved him, and the man went away very sad. What does this mean? Did Jesus mess up? Did Jesus use the wrong missionary technique on this guy? All right, he used way of the master. He should have used evangelism explosion. You know, he, oh, I did the wrong one. He didn't, become, didn't come to Christ. He, didn't, he wasn't saved. No, Jesus did exactly what he was supposed to do. He loved this man. He actually, in that love, made this man sad, as he should be, that he was not worshiping God. But it doesn't seem like this guy came to faith. This guy went away sad because Jesus was offering him the joy of relationship with him, and this guy rejected it. Now, what does that teach us? That teaches us that when we're in relationship with God, we might be grieved, He might make us sad. He might call us to things that feel like losses, that feel like tragedies. He's calling us to experience things that are ultimately what we need and what we want, but they feel miserable at the time. Don't think that Jesus doesn't love you or he's abandoned you. This is, this is the way of love for Jesus Christ. Sometimes we need to be brought to grief. And that is, that is a hard reality, but it's so that we might have Jesus so that we might have true riches. We might have the things that we actually need and want. But be ready to be loved like that. That is the love of Jesus Christ. And as, as a corollary to that, if we are wanting to love as Jesus loved, we have to be ready to hurt people in a way, to make people sad, to make people grieve. Grieve their sin, grieve their idols, grieve the state of their soul. That that is actually faithful love sometimes. Sometimes we really are called to that, to reflect Jesus Christ. It is not to be mean. It is not just to, to heap burdens on people. It is a step that they might know Christ. And we have to be ready to do that as hard as it may be. But, all right, let's shift gears a little bit. That's probably not the question that's on the forefront of your mind. How sad do I need to make people in Jesus' name, right? That's probably not your emphasis. What you want to know from the sermon is, do I need to follow this commandment? Do you need to be grieved right now that you have to go home and go sell everything? What do you think? Is this commandment for us? Now, like 
like I sometimes do, yes and no. It, it is for us, it isn't. We do need to obey it. We, in some ways, we kind of don't in others. Let's start with verse 24. Jesus actually starts to explain this a little bit. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus is trying to show the crowd, and ultimately show this rich man, that you cannot possibly save yourself. And it's not because this guy is rich, like, oh, the rich people, they just have a really hard time. No, the rich people actually had it the easiest. They were probably the most likely to get into the kingdom of God. Because if you're rich, you can spend all your time devoting yourself to the scripture, learning the commandments and obeying them. You can shape your whole life around making sure you're ceremonially clean. You never have to do any dirty, hard labor that is going to mess up your spiritual state. You have 10,000 sheep. So next time you send, oh, just go slaughter one of them and you'll be okay. Right? You have all the resources for holiness. He basically, this rich man, could have orchestrated his whole life around being holy. The point isn't that, oh, no, rich people are bad. It's the point is that even this rich guy, getting into heaven is impossible for him. It's very similar to what he says about the, the scribes and the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount. Your righteousness must exceed that of the, right, of the Pharisees and the scribes. That's why the people are so surprised. They're like, well, then who can be saved? What are we supposed to do? In a sense, the point of this commandment is to remind people that it is impossible. It is impossible to enter the kingdom of God. That's the point of his, his little illustration. All right, so it's as easy as take, take a needle, take the little eye of a needle, and pass a camel through that. All right, that is the illustration. Now, there's other people who, who might say that, no, the eye of the needle is a gate in Jerusalem a long time ago. So, like, the camel had to kind of, like, stoop down, and it's, like, kind of awkward. Like, no, that's not the point. That is not the illustration. Maybe you've heard that before. He's talking about a literal needle. A needle, a little tiny head, pass a camel through it. It is impossible for someone to save themselves. It is impossible for this rich man to obey enough to get into the kingdom of God. That is his point. And so, is this commandment for us? In one sense, no. The whole point is that it's impossible to get into the kingdom by mere obedience. And so if we're thinking, oh man, I just need to go follow that commandment. Like, no, there's a hundred million thousand commandments that you're not doing well enough. You're never going to do a good enough job. You can kind of, you can stop now. You don't need to do that one. You don't need any of them because you're not going to make it. And that's where what is possible with God is impossible with man. Jesus comes to, to do the impossible. As God, he fulfills perfect obedience. He is the one who is truly good. 
He came to be perfectly obedient. It's only possible because he was God. And as man then, he can give that perfect record to us. He can do the impossible for us. That is what we look for in Jesus Christ. We look for his perfection, not our righteousness. So no, in that sense, you do not need to do this commandment. But then, a little later on in the passage, it seems like you do. Look at verse 28. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. What is Jesus saying there? He's basically saying that, no, if you give everything up, you didn't just waste your time. It wasn't a total loss. In fact, the more that you abandon, the more that you give up, the more you will receive. You will receive many times more what you have given up and given to the kingdom of God. That truth still stands. And so if you want to receive back more than you ever give up, then yeah, keep this commandment. You will receive it back. And that's where Jesus' commandments are not just arbitrary. He doesn't just kind of throw them out to test us. They're actually for our good. And would connect us to the kingdom, would give us the life that we were looking for. We want real riches? Then yeah, give up your wealth and you will find real riches you'll receive back many more times in this life. So whatever you're looking for, if you're looking for beauty or power or wealth or comfort or honor, if you abandon those things, you will get them back more than you ever had them before. There's a reality to that commandment. And so are you doing this for your salvation? No. Are you doing this for your good? Yeah, probably we'd actually benefit from keeping these commandments. But Jesus actually goes, goes on more to say more radical statements. He's saying that in abandoning those things, you will find eternal life. We tend to skip over that, but that, that is what he says. Look back. There's no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive back many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. By giving up those things, you really do find eternal life. So then, if you want eternal life, you are called to give up these things. And I would say that it's even harder than the command that he gives to this man, to the rich young ruler. If you are in love and worship wealth, then yeah, you are commanded to give up wealth. But if you worship and love other things, you are commanded to give those up as well. So if you love the acceptance and the love of people, Jesus is calling you to give that up. To be rejected and persecuted and hated by people in obedience to Christ. Maybe you love comfort. 
Jesus is calling us to give up our comforts, to be uncomfortable for Jesus' sake, to be around people that we find awkward, situations that are weird, places that we don't actually like, to be uncomfortable for the sake of Christ. Maybe your heart is all about work. It's all about kind of uh, striving for that next promotion. Jesus is calling you to abandon your work that you might have a greater purpose, a purpose in the kingdom of God, to the point that you might actually get fired from your job or lose a promotion. Lastly, maybe it's family. You just love your family. You're all about them. Jesus is calling us to put our family second, to put God first. So that you might offer God all of yourself and your family might, might come in second place. Those are the real commands that Jesus gives us. To follow Jesus with all of our heart, with all of our lives, with all of our love. All right, but we have a dilemma there. Which one is it? We have two, two options here. Is it that we get eternal life by getting it from Jesus Christ on the cross? Or is it that we get it by abandoning all things? It seems like he's going both ways here. The thing is that these two things are actually two sides of the same coin. We get eternal life by union with Jesus Christ by relationship with him, by love for him. Both of those things come together. So that when you abandon all of your other lovers, all of your other idols, all of the other gods that you worship, you're coming into union with Christ. And that union brings with it the righteousness of the cross. When you think of the, the analogy of marriage, when you get married, you forsake all others. That's what we say in the, in the traditional vows, that forsaking all others for the faithfulness to your spouse. That when you come to marriage, you're kind of cutting yourself off from every other relationship. That this is your one exclusive love. Now that is what Jesus is calling us to that we might be married and united to Jesus Christ. Which brings with it abandoning all other loves and getting all the benefits of the cross. Both of those things come together. So when we marry Jesus, we inherit everything that he did. Right? He gives us his eternal life. He gives us his righteousness. Really good things. And when, when we bring into our marriage all of our sin and baggage and misery, Jesus takes all that from us. Right? There's a good exchange there. Jesus married down in that sense. He's not getting anything out of this marriage. He's given us everything. We bring a lot of negative into the marriage that he takes care of. So when we think of the rich young ruler and think of this commandment that Jesus gives him, Jesus is not giving this commandment to just be mean to this guy, to call him out into his sin. This is a marriage proposal from Jesus Christ. 
He is saying, abandon this false lover of wealth. Get true wealth and come follow me. Come be with me. Come be united to me. And you will find that eternal life that you are looking for. You will find eternal life in me in relationship with me. And when Jesus calls us to give up these things, to shed our idols, to let go of the things that we love and worship, he is calling us to love us. He is giving us a marriage proposal, inviting us to throw off all these false loves and to love him exclusively and fully and with all of our hearts. Now, that, that should be the power, that, the power of that love should motivate us to throw off all those temptations. He's not just asking us to forsake all of these things. He's asking us to replace all of these things with real love, with a real relationship, with real union with God. And so, I'll leave you with this. Um, does Jesus love us unconditionally? I'd say in a sense, yes. In a sense, no. He comes to us with no conditions. Like, we can be as terrible, we can be the worst sinners that we, you can ever imagine. But unconditional love would just be like, okay, you're, you're fine to stay where you are. You're fine to sin. You can kind of stay right where you are and I'm going to love you. I'd say that Jesus loves us more than that. Jesus comes with a powerful love, with a devoted love, with a sacrificial love, so that he's not actually content with leaving us in the muck and the mire. He's not content leaving us in his sin. He wants to see us come to better places, that we might be perfectly in love with him with no hindrances. Jesus wants an exclusive relationship with us. Not just we would be one of his many lovers. And that's where Jesus does, does want us to throw off these things. That we will find eternal life when we do. We will find that all of those abusive ex-lovers will not satisfy us and have just left us high and dry. He loves us and he pursues us in that way. I would say that in light of that steadfast and amazing love of Jesus, let's love him in turn. Let us be faithful lovers of Jesus Christ, that we might have more of him and less of all of this false love.